I wanted to start by something, just mentioning something that I've kind of mused about over the years, and that is that the things that, when it comes to, to human connection, the things that we believe in are not often tangible. You could even argue that they don't exist unless people think about them and believe in them. Okay, so an example of that would be your marriage, if you're married. Say, well, your marriage is really a, it's, it's in your mind, right? I mean, there's not, you're not, there's nothing physical that says you're married. It's just you believe it to be true, and therefore it is. Your connection like love even to, even to siblings or children or whatever, it's, there, there's, there's something intangible, something, it's not just material. There's something soulish, something spiritual. And, and, the, and that's also true for nations. Think about America. Say, what does it mean to be an American? Well, there's nothing physically about the landmass of America that makes it American. Uh, you could put any other, whatever, government or culture or something in the same landmass, and it could, it could live. Um, so what is America? And when you start to look at it that way, you start to realize that ideas, shared ideas, really matter. Um, if we don't share an idea together as a people, as a country, then that idea starts to disappear. The thing we're believing in starts to disappear. So when it comes to some of these intangible relationships we have, we do have symbols, right? So uh, some of you who are married, you're wearing a wedding ring. You say, well, the wedding ring doesn't make me married, and I don't really even venerate my wedding ring. It just symbolizes something that I believe, and that defines me, and that is really important to me. You look over at the flag and say, well, the, the flag isn't America, um, and there's not really anything special about that particular piece of cloth or the way it's designed. You could design another one, and it could have meaning too. Um, so why is it meaningful? Well, it's because it represents a shared idea we have. It represents something that together as a country we believe is true, and so when we see it, it's not that we're seeing something and go, oh, wow, I, those are my favorite colors. We're not thinking of it that way. We're thinking about what it represents as far as the ideals that we've all agreed upon as a culture, and we share those. And we might feel the opposite feeling if you were to hold up the flag of a, of a nation that somehow you know, rejects human rights or a nation that um, we, we would consider an enemy or an adversary. People might step back from that. And again, it's not the, the cloth isn't offensive to them. It's the representation of the, the ideals that define that culture or place. Um, so in a little bit, we'll talk more about that. But today we're going to kind of land the plane here on the American Reset, talking about what it means to have sacred honor, what that phrase means, and what that meant to our founders, what it can mean to us today. Uh, on July 4th, we kicked this off. We talked about the fact that everyone is created equal and that America didn't think that up. America recognized that. That's why it was a special thing when the Declaration of Independence was drafted, why it was different than what other nations and other kingdoms around the world had done. It's because finally someone recognized that the rights of the people, the identity of the people, is not, it's not even about their government at all. In fact, the government should just be there to serve and protect the people. The people's identity and purpose comes from something above. And in the Declaration of Independence, it says, the laws of nature and nature's God. Natural law, divine law, defines who you and I are. God has created us. He owns us. 
And so therefore, when we look at one another, our task is not to figure out who's more powerful than the next person. How can I lord it over you? How can I you know, ascend to the heights of some human government and control you? Uh, instead, I look at you as an equal. Um, and so this was revolutionary in its time. Today, we've grown accustomed to the idea that all people are created equal, and we would still defend that. We'd still say, wow, there's still work to do in trying to figure out how to live that way. Uh, but we're thankful that America does represent that. So when I look at the flag, those are some of the things that I'm thinking of. I'm thinking of these values, the unalienable rights that have been granted to me, not by government, not by America, but by God, and then America recognized that. So along the way, we've made this statement that America does not give us our purpose in life. America simply allows us to live out our purpose in life in freedom. And so for that, we say, Lord, thank you for letting me live in America. Uh, thank you for the great blessing of liberty that my life does not have to be hampered or controlled. There's not a whole bunch of barriers in front of me when it would come to living out my purpose because of the sacrifice of those who founded the country and then those who defended it along the way. I still have the opportunity to make my own decisions in life, uh, to be thought of as an equal with the people around me. And so that's really special, that's really amazing, and we're grateful for that. But then last week we talked about the fact that we have to have vigilance when it comes to the protection of that freedom, and history is an amazing illustration of why that's important. Uh, because in every generation there are threats uh, to our souls, there are threats to free people, uh, there are threats to what's right. Those threats come from inside of us, the wickedness of our hearts, the selfishness that can grow within us. Those threats can come from outside of us uh, in the form of systems or leaders or whatever that would take us in the wrong direction. Um, and so we learned that eternal vigilance is the price of liberty. Uh, as it's stated there at the National Archives on the statue right at the front door, uh, because no matter how good your system is, uh, no matter how impressive your, your laws might be or how, how many wonderful things you say in your founding documents, if you don't stay on it, if you don't keep believing it, if you don't enforce it, then eventually it starts to fall away just like any other human endeavor would. So we've learned that the freedom we enjoy and the reason that we can be excited about America is not um, just because we're sort of blindly patriotic, um, and it's not even because we love the land or the way that the people act. I mean, maybe you do, but that's not really the thing we're celebrating. Uh, we're not even celebrating the current American government or the, the things that government might do right or wrong. When we think about America, we're thinking about these ideals, that all people are created equal, that we all share unalienable rights that are given to us by God and not by governing authority, and therefore... When we stand for freedom, we're not really standing up for America as a government or even as a people group. We're standing for those principles. So in this series, we've been walking through that, and I, I wanted to conclude today by looking at, first of all, the people who originally stood for those ideals and what happened to them, and then to open up the scripture and find out what it will take for us to live those ideals day to day. How will we embrace the life of freedom and in embracing it, live our lives to the max, but also preserve the freedom that we have for future generations? 
Okay, so that's where we're going today, and if you want to get a head start, you can turn in the Bible to Galatians 5, but it will take us a few minutes to get there uh, before we, uh, as we kind of get things rolling. So, when America's founders declared independence, they put all they had on the line, and you might remember this famous line, the last line of our Declaration of Independence, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, that's God, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. So there were 56 men in the room in Independence Hall in Philadelphia as they were signing this. Not necessarily all of them signed it on the same day, but all their signatures made it to the document. Um, and the, the reason they were signing this declaration uh, was not just of their own, it wasn't just those 56. They were representing the population of America coming and saying, you know, let's, we're, we're, we're leading kind of by representative government here where the colonies should go, whether the colonies should stay loyal to the British crown or form their own independent states. Um, and thankfully they chose the latter and this great experiment of freedom was born. Uh, freedom isn't free. For the founding American generation, liberty required that they sacrificially love one another and think beyond their own lifetimes. So for you to put your name on the Declaration of Independence, uh, for you to put your family on the line, your community on the line, to know that you were signing up for war with what was then the most powerful entity on earth, the British Empire, um, you had to have a vision that was beyond just your own selfishness, right? Because if you were just in it for yourself, it would be safer, smarter to hide in the shadows somewhere and let other people work it out. Uh, but instead, these were people who stood up, really this whole generation uh, stood up and took, um, took the cause of liberty seriously. Their vision for a free republic would not be realized until many of them would pay a high price. Okay, so just to, just to help us grasp that, kind of make it personal, I wanted to read to you a little bit about these people. Um, and something striking is that the people who signed our founding document, there weren't that many. I mean, we've got 56, so that'd be you know, maybe half or a little more than half of the people in this room. Um, as a subset of the whole nation, just a small, small number of people that were together pledging their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor um, in representation of all those that were following them, that they had been sent, uh, that had sent them. By the way, if you ever visit Independence Hall in Philadelphia, one thing that also is really striking about it is how small and simple and unimpressive it actually is. You know, you see it on the money or whatever, it looks really grandiose, but when you go there, it's basically surrounded by skyscrapers and, uh, you know, bustling urban life, and here there's this little antique building, and you go, wow, that's where America was born, that's where all of this happens, an amazing uh, amazing thing to think about the Constitutional Convention and the, the Declaration and all these important things happening in, in such small and simple places. Okay? Five signers were captured by the British as traitors and tortured before they died. Twelve had their homes ransacked and burned. Two lost their sons in the Revolutionary Army. Another had two sons captured. Nine of the 56 fought and died from wounds or hardships in the war. They signed and they pledged their lives, their fortunes, their sacred honor. So what kind of men were they? Well, 24 were lawyers and jurists. 11 were merchants, 9 were farmers and large plantation owners, men of means, well-educated. 
But they signed the declaration knowing well that the penalty would be death if they were captured. So these were not people who were strung out at the very end of their rope and had no other place to go other than the revolution. These were people who could have lived a comfortable life for years forward if they just would agree to pay the tax and be a part of the British Empire. Um, these were people that were driven by ideals, not by desperation. Carter Baxton, Braxton of Virginia, was a wealthy planter and trader. He saw his ships swept from the seas by the British Navy. He sold his homes and properties to pay his debts, and he died in rags. Thomas McKeem was so hounded by the British that he was forced to move his family almost constantly. He served in the Congress without pay, and his family was kept in hiding. His possessions were taken from him, and poverty was his reward. Remember, there was no insurance, and there was no backstop or safety net for these people. Um, when they lost this, they lost it, and that was the end. Vandals or soldiers are both looted the properties of Ellery, Clymer, Hall, Walton, Gwinnett, Hayward, Rutledge, and Middleton. At the Battle of Yorktown, Thomas Nelson Jr. noted that the British General Cornwallis had taken over the Nelson home for his headquarters. Thomas quietly urged General Washington to open fire. His own home was destroyed, and Nelson died bankrupt. Francis Lewis had his home and properties destroyed. The enemy jailed his wife, and she died within a few months. John Hart was driven from his wife's bedside as she was dying. Their 13 children fled for their lives. His fields and his gristmill were laid to waste. More than a year later, for more than a year, he lived in forests and caves, returning home to find his wife dead and his children vanished. A few weeks later, he died from exhaustion and a broken heart. Norris and Livingston suffered similar fates. Such were the stories and the sacrifices of the American Revolution. These were not wild-eyed, rabble-rousing ruffians. They were soft-spoken men of means and education. They had security, but they valued liberty more. So when you see that in context, it makes you grateful, doesn't it? That there were people who were willing to set aside their own best interests personally to serve the greater good to think beyond themselves, to love their neighbors, to love their children, and even, by extension, to love future generations, including us, to do things that in their time they would never see reward for or that they might meet with certain doom for, um, and yet they persisted. Ben Franklin was famous for saying, as, as one of the other delegates said, surely we're going to be hanged together for this. He said, well, if we're not hanged together, we'll surely be hanged separately. <laughs> so, uh, because they knew, they knew what was happening. They knew that they were going up against almost impossible odds numerically, simply armed with belief um, that, that the world should be a different kind of place than it was. And I think we share that belief even today knowing that there's some that's good in the world that we celebrate, there's much about the world that needs to change. Um, and what are we willing to put on the line for that change to occur? So with that backdrop, um, I want to share with you a few things our founding fathers said, and then we'll go to Galatians 5. John Adams, after all of the struggle of the revolution and the Constitutional Convention and that founding and framing era, um, at the end of his life, he wrote, posterity, which is an old-fashioned word for, you know, future generations, children, you will never know how much it costs the present generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you will make a good use of it. 
And imagine him handing forward the torch of liberty, um, never realizing, I mean, we know the whole story, or at least the story up until now, so we know that America turned out to be a wonderful and prosperous place. We know that the, 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 the experiment of freedom happened. We know that eventually liberty did ring throughout the land, and then eventually all kinds of people became welcome. And then you can go through different victories throughout history as liberty was expanded, when the slaves were freed, when women were granted the right to vote. I mean, you could go through and say, so much has happened that started with this simple concept that these founders put into motion, but they didn't get to live to see all of it. Uh, They put it all on the line believing that this was right, whether or not they would ever reap the personal benefit. So how do we preserve, protect, and maximize the freedom that we've been given? How do we live as the sort of people that, like our founders, would say, I have a sacred honor to offer. Uh, There's something about my life, there's belief, there's character, there's truth, that, that, that resides inside of me, and that's what I'm setting forward as I think about um, guarding America. Daniel Webster said, if we abide by the principles taught in the Bible, our country will go on prospering and to prosper. But if we and our posterity neglect its instructions and authority, no man can tell how sudden a catastrophe may overwhelm us and bury all our glory in profound obscurity. So from the very beginning, they knew that they were setting in motion this this idea of a free republic where all of us would have a say. But they knew that that only worked if all of us actually had a different governing structure in our lives, not some sort of authoritarian, not a monarch threatening our lives unless we fall into line, but somehow we would have to govern ourselves. Uh, Somehow we would have to look at the principles in the Bible and say, I will follow that not because I'm threatened if I don't, but because I believe it's right. So they were banking on us tracking forward with that character in mind. Robert Robert Winthrop, um, a little bit later on in the story, he summarized it this way. He said, men in a word must necessarily be controlled, either by a power within them or by a power without them, either by the word of God or by the strong arm of man, either by the Bible or the bayonet. One way or another, you and I will be governed, and we have to decide which way we'll have it. Will we govern ourselves, or will we be governed by others? Simply put, a life of freedom requires that we govern ourselves, and I want to give you one other quote from a founder here that I think helps us see this so clearly. John Adams, again, he wrote in this letter to the Massachusetts militia, we have no government armed with power capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. A little bit of backdrop to this. Remember, at the same time the Americans were having a revolution, the French were also having a revolution. Some of you historians know the story here. The American Revolution was based on principles, was based on on Christian morality. Um, And so as people, they were putting their, their sacred honor on the line, they were living in character, Uh, They actually had higher principles than the people they were breaking away from. The French Revolution was more of a moral free-for-all. It was more like the Book of Judges. Everyone can do whatever they want. Everyone does what's right in their own eyes. And the French Revolution collapsed quickly into into a bloodbath that then led to dictatorship. The American Revolution didn't collapse, and it led to a republic, and here we still stand. So why was that the case? Well, it's because of this dynamic. 
Uh, the next sentence there says, avarice, which is greed, ambition, revenge, and gallantry would only break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for the government of any other. In other words, if the people aren't willing to govern themselves, if there's not self-control among the population, then a free republic is not going to work. Because if, if, if there's not going to be government from above pushing down on you, then there has to be government coming from up, from the grassroots, from you and I in our hearts. Um, if, we're not being, if there's not honesty and truth and things being enforced upon us, then we have to do it ourselves. So this is why this is an ongoing experiment, right? Uh, because we all know what's in our own hearts. We know how possible it is for us to become selfish, for us to lie, for us to cheat, for us to steal, for us to go off the path of character. Um, and, and essentially, if the whole population decides to walk in its own way, the constitutional form of government that we enjoy and the protection of our rights will not last for very long. So what do we do since we know that that dynamic is in play? And we know that it seems like with each passing year, there's less and less tether among our general population to any, any sort of shared standard of character. Uh, what do we do personally? As Zach mentioned earlier, we look in the mirror and we say, okay, I, I, I don't have the power to change all of America, but here I've got this American in view and I can work on him. Um, so first of all, we understand that self-government by definition, and, it's, and it's, it's actually a spiritual thing. It's something that happens in your heart and your soul. And that's what I want us to look at Ephesians five, or at Galatians 5 to study out a little bit. Look to verse 13. And here it's talking about the freedom that Jesus purchased on the cross. Freedom from having to be overseen by the law. It says, For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying each other. Now we're used to reading this context in terms of you know, personal life and church. I want to go back and read that last verse again, but this time I want you to think about America as a people group. But if you are always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Well, what do we do if that's the case? Well, verse 16, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you're not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, 
dissension, division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited or provoke one another or be jealous of one another. Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. And be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. Pay careful attention to your own work. For then you will get the satisfaction of a job well done and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. For we are each responsible for our own conduct. For those who are taught the word of God should provide for their teachers, sharing all good things with them. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will, either har- or you will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So here we we see these teachings, and we understand this applies to any of us, anywhere on earth, anytime in our lives. But when you look at it in the context of trying to live as a citizen you realize that the power for us to really sustain the kind of government that we have, the power for us to live in liberty, is not a matter of who's the mightiest or who can talk the best. Uh, It's not even necessarily a matter of who gets to become in charge of various aspects of the government. It starts in our heart, in our self-government, and we learn here that really is spiritual government. Where do we get the power to have self-control? We get it from the Holy Spirit. Where do we we get the the power to contend with all of our evil desires that, that are in our heart? Well, we get it from God's law and God's truth and God's power in our lives. And if we don't recognize that, if we're not interested in following the Holy Spirit, then we will ultimately fail at being... Um, a human being that, that honors God or walks his way. Um, so I think that the self-governed lifestyle is not necessarily about you pulling up your bootstraps or whatever we might say. Um, it's not a self-reliant lifestyle in that sense. It's actually a lifestyle of dependence on God so that you can be independent from other human dictators or authorities. You're offering yourself to serve God so that you aren't ending up uh, serving a government somewhere. You and I have the opportunity every day when we wake up 
to decide that we will live by the Spirit, knowing that those two forces, just like the Scripture says, are always in opposition to each other. The sinful nature is there. It's among us, it's around us, it's influencing us, and if we, if we decide to go our own way, then that's the direction we'll go. Um, a, a, a culture that's defined by that will not last in freedom very long. Um, but if instead we say, no, I will let the, the Holy Spirit be the guide of my life, I will follow God's path, um, God will bring into your life fruit that looks like love and joy and self-control and peace and those fruits of the Spirit that we talk about um, in our personal lives but are also really relevant when you think about your community life or your national life. Uh, we're not going to see those, those things at work nationally unless we're seeing them happen personally. So we don't look up to the government, federal government, and say you should have more self-control if you don't have self-control. We don't look around and say there should be more peace in this world if you don't have the Holy Spirit fruit of peace in your life. Uh, we don't look up and say, why aren't people more faithful or good or gentle or loving or kind if you aren't faithful, good, loving, gentle, kind? So the principle here is that anything we look up and we say, I want my culture, I want my country to live that way, well, it starts with you and with me living that way. So we say, Lord, on that basis, it's not my brother, it's not my sister, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer, standing in the need of transformation. If we want America to be transformed, then we have to be transformed. If we want America to be well-governed, then we have to be well-governed. And if we don't want someone else doing that job for us, then we have to learn how to do it well ourselves, which means yielding to God, following the Holy Spirit, not our own passions, just as this scripture says. Verse seven, don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. You will always reap what you sow. And so you could ask in your life, just like it would be easy to look out at America and say, wow, we're sowing all sorts of bad seed out there. Well, that's true. But what are you sowing? What are you planting? And what will the harvest be? That's where national transformation has to start. If you happen to find yourself one day waking up and you're the leader of the country or you're a key leader somewhere, then great, you have additional influence that the rest of us don't have. But if you're saying, from where I sit today, in my station in life, I wish America was different, then the only thing that you can do is start with yourself right there in the mirror and say, Lord, would you help me to govern myself? And when you can do that, um, change begins. Something I found from George Washington in 1783, it's kind of fascinating, um, and if you can get through the sort of historic language here and hear what he's saying, it's pretty amazing that our first president would call us to this. Uh, he wrote this in a letter to governors throughout the new states, um, just kind of celebrating, and he wrote this as a prayer to the Lord. He said, I now make it my earnest prayer that God would have the United States in his holy protection, that he would most graciously be pleased to dispose us all to do justice and to love mercy, 
and demean ourselves with that charity, humility, and pacific temper of mind, which were the characteristics of the divine author of our blessed religion. So let's do a little modern translation here. Who is that? Who's the divine author of our blessed religion? Jesus. Um, and without a humble imitation of whose example in these things, we can never hope to be a happy nation. So if you look closely at what George Washington was praying, he was saying, if we want to be a happy nation, we have to act and imitate, or we have to act like and imitate Jesus. That's the only road forward. He, he mentions doing justice, loving mercy, being humble. That's right out of Micah 6, 8. Uh, a challenge for the kind of people that we would want to be. And so here's our first president saying, you know, this, this great experiment we're embarking on, this amazing new opportunity that we all have to lead a new nation, if we want this to work, we're going to have to follow Jesus. To the extent that we follow him, this will work. To the extent that we don't, uh, we'll get off track. So a question that we can ask is, who will we become? Before we entertain a vision of what we can do, we first consider this. Who must we be? It's interesting to think about the future in America. I don't know if you muse about this very often, but you, you know, so, some of us who are predisposed to pessimism, you know who you are. I know who you are. <laughs> we all know. Um, you, you are, it's easy to think about the doom and gloom, right? And we know there's lots of potential doom and gloom, and there is even some current and happening doom and gloom out there. Uh, there's also a bunch of amazing opportunities that are out there for what we can do as a country together. You put this many people together with all these skills and abilities, all this prosperity, all this freedom, amazing things can start to happen, sure. But before we dream about that, or as we dream about that, we also have to be thinking, who are we supposed to be? Because all of those dreams won't end up being realized if we ourselves can't be governed, if we ourselves don't live the principles of liberty that we've been given. So what will we pledge to one another in support of that vision? Remember the original 56 signers, they, they had their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. And that's all they could think of. That's what we've got. We're putting it on the table. We know this could cost us everything to defend, to protect, to attempt. Here you and I have an opportunity to start on a much stronger foundation than they did, on an amazing foundation where a lot of that sacrifice and cost has already been paid. The opportunity is sitting in front of us. What will we put forward? How will we make a good use of the freedom that we have in our hands right now? Because I hope that as you go home, your heart, your aim, and mine as well, is maybe not so much anger at what politicians are doing, frustration with the direction of the country, worry about what will happen next, uh, but instead resolve. Resolve in our hearts to be the sort of person that's worthy of freedom, to live the sort of life uh, that preserves it and protects it for the future. So let's commit that to the Lord. Lord, I do pray for resolve in our hearts. Would you give us vision? The vision of who you want us to be, the personal steps that you want us to take next. Would you give us a heart filled with 
humility and gratefulness for what has been handed to us, but also a heart of honesty, realism about what still needs to occur and what it will take to move forward. I, for one, am thankful for our founding generation, for what they set in motion that's still impacting my life and my family today. I'm thankful for what it means when we talk about America not being a bloodline, a people group, a piece of property, but instead a set of ideals and principles that really do offer us the best path forward in this earthly lifetime. Would you help us each to maximize the freedom we have? And would you give us the Holy Spirit's power in our lives to be well-governed, to be filled with love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? We commit this to you in Jesus' name. There's one more thing we need to do before we conclude our American Reset series, and uh, and so I want to invite you to participate if you would like to. If you're willing to stand for our national anthem, here's why I want to invite you to do so. When I stand and look at the flag, not necessarily standing for whatever is happening out there in the country at any given moment, I'm standing for the ideals that that represents. It's still true that anywhere in the world you go, if you look up and that flag is in the breeze, you have freedom that many other people don't have. And so I look to that and I think not just about the past, but I also look at that and I think about the future. So as we sing, we can think that as well. Now, the person who wrote these words, many of you know the story, uh, he was watching the bombardment of a U.S. fort by British forces, and he was, the, the, the question was, would the fort hold? Would the people in there keep fighting even though they were just a, a fierce rocket barrage from the sea was coming at them? And so as he's peering through his little window in the bottom of a, of a ship as a prisoner, he's seeing what's happening, and he's hoping that the vision won't be lost in this great sea of gunfire. He's hoping that the flag will still be there, not because the cloth was special or they were his favorite colors or he agreed with all the politicians who were behind that flag, uh, but because he knew that that flag still waving would mean something for the world, would mean something for him and for his country. Uh, It would mean something for us. And so when we look back and we see that, we say, yeah, there's a lot of history that we appreciate. But then we look forward. We say, Lord, I'm standing um, not for the flag itself, but for the principles of liberty that I pray will continue for this generation and the next and the next, and not just here in America, but anywhere in the world where people yearn to be free. So let's sing. So proud.